I'm Leticia from Brazil. Join me at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You get all sorts of extra content just like I do every month. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, a serial killer lurked in London's underground for years, preying on society's forgotten people. We'll talk about the podcast, The Nobody Zone. Then, Cassie is a hard-partying stewardess who wakes up in bed with a murdered man and can't remember what happened. We'll review the new comedy thriller, The Flight Attendant. Plus, we'll give our thoughts on the finale of Murder on Middle Beach. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. I'd like to tell America, Kevin, you did finally shave that neck part of your beard. And I really a little bit. appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. It was just going way too far down, and now it looks regular. I can't help how the hair grows on my face. You can help what you cut off. I, you know, I wasn't a caveman. <laughs> I didn't have, like, selective genes to say, all right, let's do, like, a whole line of people that don't have hair on their face. No, listen, I, the hair on your face is fine. It okay. just shouldn't go all the way on your neck, because that's weird. Okay. This isn't Portland, Kevin. This is New Hampshire. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> it's not Brooklyn. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified pet detective and certified cat lady, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello. Meow, Rebecca. Hello, cats and kittens. <laughs> and finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy and host of the Strange Arrivals podcast and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. Well, Kevin, we have a lot to do tonight, so I say we just get right into it. Let's get into it. I have documents, computer disks, names, bank accounts, and, and more that would benefit the Interpol investigation. They are kept in a safe place with instructions to be sent to Interpol in the event something should happen to me. What the f***? In the finale of HBO's Murder on Middle Beach, Madison Hamburg concluded his investigation into his mother's killing by uncovering documents related to his father's shady international business doings, suing the police to get the case file, and secretly taping a meeting with his dad to get answers. Ten years I've been going over this. Ten years I've been... This is not, this no, is not me not. accusing you of anything. I'm this is not. just me asking okay. you questions because I want to trust you and I want a relationship okay, with my I father. I don't, I don't, I don't want to live this. I really don't want to live through this. Spoiler alert, the series ends with Madison coming to terms with his personal journey, then winning access to the police file to jumpstart a new phase in the investigation. Last week, we were four thumbs up on the first three episodes with high hopes for the finale. I just want to take a few minutes to do something we don't usually do and go around the horn to get everyone's thoughts on the ending of Murder on Middle Beach. And we Is this will... a true crime update? It's No, it's a true... So I can't do it? No, it's uh... a true crime documentary update. Want to say that all right should i yeah all do right. it. True, true crime, crime documentary, documentary update wow so we will be talking at length about the finale of murder on middle beach and our feelings about the whole series i don't know about you guys but i can't stop thinking about it in our patreon after show today so we'll keep this part tight and we'll have a long discussion about it in the after show so let's just get to it i'd love you guys to weigh in on this, just kind of going around the horn, I don't want to do the whole thumbs up or thumbs down thing in a ham-fisted way, but did Madison land the plane with episode four? Kevin, I'm going to start with you. What do you think? Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, uh, I it reminds me a lot of Serial in the sense that both of these things, it's not really, in the end, about the crime and what happened. It ends up really being a story about the documentarian's journey. And so even though in the end there's like really no concrete answer to the mystery, that it's still very satisfying. And, you know, I I found it to be really, really strong watching this right after watching Trial 4. Yeah. I think we've got two really fantastic documentaries here. Yeah. Toby, what do you think? Uh, Is this about his journey? Do you think he landed the plane on this episode four, Toby? Yeah, I think he landed the plane. Um, 
he doesn't resolve everything, but he gets to a, a place on everything. I think, like, I'm thinking particularly with his father, where he kind of exhausts the effort that he is sort of able and willing to put into that relationship when his father's just going to be sort of dodging the important questions. Yeah. I think I think Kevin's right about his comparison with Serial. I think what's a little bit different here is that the stakes just seem so much higher yeah. for the for the documentarian. Agreed. I mean he's he's really going back and and sort of exposing these things in his life. Whereas Sarah kind of, you know, we're sort of watching her as she went through this investigation about something which she didn't naturally have any connection to. You know, and, and it doesn't get it doesn't get easier in the final episode. I, there's a very tough bit where uh, his aunt Conway calls him and is just kind of going off. You get your little fucking project thing going and blah blah blah. You know, hopefully it will come to a fruition at what, some point. Don't push me away, Conway. I'm not pushing you away. I'm telling you, tell me what the fuck is going on. She sounded drunk. It was very sad. I, yeah. It was very, very sad. I mean, I know, yeah, I don't want to say that she was, but uh, it was, yeah. It, she was It off, was troubling yeah. Yeah. whatever was going on. So, you know, in the end, I, I thought this was as good as anything, any documentary film series that we've watched. You know, I liked it. I actually liked it a lot better than Trial 4. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually put on, put on social media that I thought it was the best thing that I thought we'd watched. And uh, one person got back to me and asked, if we'd reviewed the OJ documentary from a long time ago on ESPN. And that was the only that, I mean, that was a good other case for the best one we've done. I I think they're just so different in sort of approach and scope that it's hard to compare them. But uh, I, I, you know, I, I've got nothing bad to say about it. I thought it was great. What about you, Laura Bricker? Do you think Madison Hamburg landed the plane with episode four? Yeah, I think that, you know, we definitely got to the point in this episode and this sort of resolution where he did have this sort of come to Jesus conversation with his father. And I think that's what, I mean, I'd been waiting for because, you know, I don't want to speculate too much, but I mean, I, I think the father's mighty suspicious, even though I know others think the gifting tables are, but I think that the father's behavior in this last episode, it was, I mean, can you imagine you're in that position, you're making this documentary and yet you are, asking these tough questions and that scene in the car Mm. with the father and the aunt and the dad is just revealed to me his true colors. I'm like, what an asshole. I I just, regardless if he's a murderer, regardless if he's involved in the crime, what an asshole. I mean, he was just, I felt so badly for Madison at that scene in the documentary because I was like, like there was just no empathy on the part of his father toward what this was like for him. Right. And, and, and so that just, you know, just his, the way that he answered questions and wouldn't answer questions, I was getting so angry. So I definitely, and I think that the scene with the hearing, you know, for the Freedom of Information request, where I love the Yale law students who yep. are there. I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. Where you see the police find out that he had oh been my recording God. them. Oh my God, this is the best scene I've seen on film (laughs) in years. While you were at this meeting, did you make a recording of the conversation? I did. Um, How did you make the recording? On my phone. You're going to offer that as evidence? Um, We're going to, yes. Well, I'm going to object. So I think that it all came together, and I think there can be a tendency to sensationalize stories, especially when they're murder stories. But I think one of the things that showed his seriousness about this documentary and about this case and about the way he's approaching it is that he has the documents. You know he has read those documents that were unsealed. You know he has more information. That was not included because he wanted to do it correctly. And I thought that showed really good judgment on his part. Yeah. I'm going to agree with Toby hard on this. Um, I think... I mean, I know this is my favorite thing we've watched or listened to this year, period. I would have to really do some soul searching whether or not it was my favorite documentary we've ever reviewed because uh, except for the later episodes, The Staircase for me is still like way freaking up there. Uh, Trial 4, of course, is great. There are things we watch that are great. But the thing about this documentary that really makes it sing for me is who made it and how he made it, and the choices he made while making it. This is a man who 
believes, I believe, that his father killed his mother or is, was involved in his mother's murder. And he approached the whole thing with so much grace. And we see what he reveals of himself on film is extraordinary. Why do I want to have a relationship with my dad when I suspect he may have been involved in my mother's murder? is the question here, right? And it really just speaks to a human desire to be part of a family, to be loved, to have a place. We hear his sister say the same thing. My two favorite scenes in the finale, and for me, the the landiest plane parts, uh, of course, were his taping his dad, but yes, that hearing, the FOIA hearing, but then also the conversation he had with his sister, where he says, I didn't want you to find out by watching the documentary that Conway thought you killed mom. And I'm like, that is exactly the scene that I wanted to see. Like, I wanted him to have that conversation with her. I wanted him to have the conversation with his family about the film he was making. He did all of those things. He didn't just do them. He showed them to us. And it was just lovely. I mean, if you watch this and you don't think Madison Hamburg is like a lovely person, there's obviously something wrong with you because he is. Um, and the only thing that I fear is is what, Kevin, that... um can he ever make a film this great again? No. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, he's obviously talented. Yeah. How do you follow up a film about, like this, about you? I mean, one of the details that I know we're going to talk about it more in the afternoon that I love is all of the captions when he says, my aunt, my girlfriend, my mom, my dad. And it's like, that's the, the writing on the screen reminding you over and over and over again that it's him, him, him. This is my story, my story, my story. Do you think he can ever make a film like this? That, that, that'll be this great. I don't want to say he's not going to, but it's going to be hard. He'll right? never make anything as personal. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure look at the, they looked like a really busy office. They were probably working on a couple of great things. <laughs> and what great, uh, we never even talked about the opening title sequence. Oh, my God. That was really great, the visuals. But, oh, um, and it's so hard. All opening title sequences now try to one up each other, and a lot of them sort of seem the same, you know? Mm-hmm. The sort of family archaeology in the dirt, the dolls in the dirt was just so perfect i don't know so let's do what we do let's uh give a mini review thumbs up or thumbs down for episode four now the complete series we have it in hand uh are we all still thumbs up laura bricker what do you think yeah i'm big thumbs up i thought it was really well done really compelling and definitely the best thing we've watched in quite some time toby ball i think i know where you stand yeah thumbs up (laughs) kevin flynn yeah, thumbs up. I think Crime Writers On has been cursed recently where we get through the first three episodes of something. We love it. And then it shits the bed. Yeah. Um, we might be reviewing something Tom Brown's body. Like <laughs> and it, yeah, there's a couple that like we really like, yeah, this was great. And then it was after that, it was horrible. And we got three episodes in and we talked about it. Said, yeah, this is good. And there's still more. And I And if we had just gone, you know, one more week. It would have been, you know, a whole different review, not a whole different review. It would have been a much more enthusiastic thumbs up. So uh, I'm glad that, yeah, it didn't uh, it didn't shit the bed. Yeah, I'm psyched that I was so enthusiastic about it last week and that Toby was, too. We were right. Uh, Yeah, huge thumbs up for me. I wish I had four hands so I could give it four thumbs up. That's how I feel about this documentary. Mm. (laughs) And we will talk about it more in the Patreon after show today. There's a bunch of details that I want to ask you guys for your thoughts about. Okay. Okay. All right. Should we move on, Kevin? We have to. <laughs> All right. Let's do it. And I went down to the cells and I found Boyd lying on his back, being given the kiss of life by the station sergeant. Round his neck was a pair of socks. After being arrested in 1983 for a petty theft in London, a homeless Irishman killed his cellmate for snoring too much. When grilled by detectives, Kieran Kelly unexpectedly confessed to a series of unsolved and undetected murders, enough to make him England's most prolific serial killer. You put yourself in my shoes, right? Yeah. You broke a killer geezer, right? And years go by, and you do another few, right? And you're not captured. Right? Are you with me now? Kelly said after getting away with shoving a man in front of a subway train in 1953, he was emboldened to kill. Over the decades, he dispatched more than a dozen men by strangulation, poisoning, beating, burning, and more train platform pushings. His targets were other alcoholic people, other homeless people, people polite society considered, quote, nobodies. Kelly was just another tramp to the police. Invisible. A nobody. So they let him go. 
in the Nobody Zone from RTE in Ireland and Third Ear in Denmark, host Tim Hinman tells the story of a killer largely forgotten by the press. First released in the spring and updated last month with new reporting, the podcast looks for murders Kelly was never charged with and whether he exaggerated his killing spree. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from the Nobody Zone, if we can remember them. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes. All right, Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. I saw when you first started the podcast that you put on social media that it was, quote, slow. Did that feeling remain as you continued listening to the Nobody Zone? Yes, it did, Rebecca. So... (laughs) I was listening to this while I was doing like house projects and I'm not really sure what the role of the narrator was. I was like, is he reporter? Is he narrator? Like, is he a voiceover actor? I didn't really understand that part, but I will say it was very soothing so much so that as I was like folding laundry, I tuned out some, I'd be like, wait, what happened? Oh, he's talking about the same thing again. So it was just, I think this should have been like four episodes instead of eight and could really have benefited from some editing because it was so repetitive that it just dragged on and on. And and I just kept like losing track of listening because it just wasn't compelling in the way that the story was being told, which is unfortunate because it's a really interesting story. It was just, I don't know what was going on. Toby, you were also confused by the role of the narrator in this podcast, were you not? I was confused by a lot of things in this podcast, actually. <laughs> Same. <laughs> I, I think that's, yeah, it's, the, that confusion was just a metaphor for a larger, uh, yeah, I couldn't quite figure out what was going on there. And then, you know, there would be a re- actual reporter talking sometimes, like interviewing somebody or trying to interview somebody. The guy who actually did the reporting somebody. for this. He's in the credits right. as having done the reporting, yes. So, so that got confusing. If the rest of it had been a little bit more comprehensible, I guess. It it probably wouldn't have felt that weird, but it was just, everything seemed, it was just hard to follow. You know, I was thinking it's a little bit like a dream in that I, I sort of remember stuff that happened, but it doesn't always make <laughs> logical sense to me. Right. And, and there are definitely gaps. And there are times when I was listening to something, I'm like, I've, did I... Am I playing the same episode that I listened to earlier again? But then, no, it turned out this was just another episode where like a very similar thing happened, but they don't do any callback. No, Toby, they actually used the same tape over and over again and some of the same narration over and over again. It was not your imagination, if it makes you feel any better. So if the idea was to recreate the disorienting feeling of like wandering drunk through London at 1959 or something, like maybe that was effective, but I just... <laughs> I found the whole thing very difficult, more difficult to follow than it should have, with the exception of the second episode, which I thought was strong. Kevin, you thought the story should have started a completely different place than it started, right? By the time I got to the end, I thought, if they had started here, this would have been a completely different podcast. Which place was that? Well, they're talking about how in Kelly's uh, family home in an, uh, somewhere in Ireland. Tiny little town. The homeowner was digging uh, a trench, and he came across some bones and looked like a skull uh, and with like a wire wrapped around the neck. And it just is like, wow, that's really interesting. And they even go to the the lengths of going themselves and visiting that village and digging up, digging deeper to see if there are more bones and trying to find out what happened. And I thought that's a really interesting mystery. And what if you that was the first episode? And when it's over, it's revealed the person who used to own that house was, uh, you know, the son grew up to be a serial killer. Yeah. You know, it's like, whoa, that would be a real kick. And then it'd be a really interesting kickoff point uh, and would sort of bookend this historical look at this killer. But they didn't do that. <laughs> yeah. You know what I think about that story and the about the lawn and the bones? Wow. I think it was a little bit of Irish Blarney. I think it was probably a dog and that was a dog collar. I really do. I, I really feel that way because you hear that guy. I mean, I was kind of getting down the line. The bartender. The wh- why the shoe? The po- I, he added that detail later, and it, he he was telling the story. Did he add it, or just he just he, he added the I mean, detail? He added and fabricated it. No, no, I'm saying that like the his story and his sureness about it being human 
got stronger and stronger the more people talked to him in the podcast. When he's first telling the story in the pub, it's like, oh, I thought it looked maybe like it was a human skull. And then later when he's talking to the archaeologist, he's like, yes, and there was a shoe. I'm not saying he was full of shit. I'm saying maybe his memory years, like 50 years later or whatever it was, 70 years yeah. later. That's not what Blarney is, but I'll just let it go. <laughs> Listen, I kissed the Blarney stone and you never have. So <sighs> don't tell me I don't know what Blarney is. Yeah, I agree with you guys. I found this podcast incredibly disorienting and worse, I found it incredibly dull in large part because they did repeat the same tape again and again and again and the same narration again and again and again. There's one point in the podcast, I believe it's in episode six, where we hear him interviewing that bartender about that bone incident, the bartender tells you what happened. And then our narrator repeats exactly what the bartender said. Well, the main one that we looked at was the the, um, head, the skull and that was left of the skull and the neck and the noose around it. You know, that's what we thought was. So to say it's like the remains of a skull, like part of a skull with a wire noose around the neck. To that point about repetition, we start the whole podcast, episode one, with this anecdote about 1953, it's the Queen's coronation, and Kelly pushes a guy in front of a train. Just as the train is about to burst out of the tunnel, he steps up and pushes the other one right in front of the train. And then they start episode two, and you're back in that train station, 1953, and it's Imagine you get pushed in front of this train. Right. So they're telling the same story again in a different way. Mm. Just as the train is about to burst into the station, a sudden gut-wrenching shove in the middle of your back sends you flying out onto the tracks in front of the oncoming train. But there's a lot of stuff that wasn't necessary. There's a lot of sound effects that I didn't think were necessary. and you know, Background music. Background music and train screeching and, and, and uh, cell door slamming and things like that. And they did have, you know, some very valuable audio tape of this uh, in interview in the confessions. But, yeah, it did seem like they used, like... The same, same clips. clips. Literally the same clips. Again and again and again. Again and again. Yeah. Uh, I... I I thought the narrator wasn't... At first, I thought it wasn't going to be too bad because he signpost a lot of things in a really interesting way up front. I, you know, it was like he did a lot of the things that we like where he says, we'll get to that. Basically saying, don't worry, we're not forgetting the things, you'll learn this. And even at one point, he said something about, you know, there were two men were arrested and he said, you can forget about him. You don't need to remember him. Right. Which I thought was a unique way of, again, focusing stuff. So I'm like, oh, okay, so we're, he's going to really hold our hand <laughs> through this. But then later And he, then never really did, did you know, it was the like, opposite. Later he mentions people's names as if we know who he's talking yeah. about. Like that dude Fisher, he keeps talking about him. I'm like, I have no idea who that is. Yeah. I don't remember at all. Laura, I do want to talk about one of the characters we meet in this podcast. That is the author who wrote the book, who sort of brought the case back into prominence and made people in the UK think there had been this rampant killer pushing lots of people in front of the trains. Former detective, allegedly, uh, Jeff Platt. You did some bodyguard work as well, Jeff. Yeah, well, I've had 500 gun battles. How many? 500. Gun battles? I've killed five. Four with firearms and one I ripped his nose off with a tire lever. Laura, what'd you think of this guy? Um, he was definitely full of poop. Um, so, but my question was, I was like, did nobody fact check this book before <laughs> it got published? Because it doesn't sound like it takes long hanging around with this guy, Jeff, to figure out that he is just telling a lot of fantastical tales, highly exaggerated, that aren't quite the way things happened. And I was like, Wow. I know you guys know when we write a true crime book here in the U.S., uh, my God, you you know, once the regular people go through it, then the lawyer goes through it. How did you get this information? Do you have documentation? Do you have this? Do you have that? I'm like, this guy, I think that was actually the only scene in this whole podcast that I was like kind of interested in was like when he was in the bar and he couldn't get away from him. And he's just telling like one story after another story after another. And I'm like- 500 gun battles? Yeah. (laughs) Five hundred. How, how many people he'd killed and how many people he'd shot and this and that. I was like, this guy is such a liar. And he wrote the book that kicked off this whole thing. I feel like that could have been investigated a little bit more in this. But then we just kind of like drop him and we go back to 
who was the other lead detective, Ian Brown. Yeah. But I think, Laura, I think they did a good job of discrediting Jeff Platt. I think they did do a couple of things really well, but yeah, but that was they, one of them. What were they discrediting? They were discrediting that maybe it wasn't 30, maybe it was 15. Like that, And the, well, the discrediting like doesn't even really take you anywhere. What's the discrediting? Just the change of the number? Right, but that's an important change. It's an important... It's a double... I mean... It, it would be more important if they told the story better. Because they don't even yeah. make us care about the dead people before telling us how many there are. You know what I mean? Like, I don't... I mean, I, as a human being, feel a difference between 15 and 30. As a listener to this podcast, I'm like, that still seems like a lot. 15 still seems like a lot if you think it was 15. Toby, what did you think about that episode? I mean, this is the one episode that I, that I, I kind of liked... And maybe, I mean, this could have been another way of framing it, is that the thing that actually brings all this stuff to light is this totally BS book, right? But without it, it seems like this whole thing would have, would have, wouldn't have been raised again. So I thought that was kind of interesting, I guess. And the fact that they kind of acknowledge that and then just like, <laughs> like tear this guy down uh, and, and they don't humiliate him. He kind of humiliates himself. I thought that was kind of interesting and it was at least sort of linear and you could kind of follow what was what was going on uh, with the amount of attention I was paying to it, I guess. But, you know, again, it, it, it was sort of a it was sort of a tangent, I guess. And I guess when your tangents are the most interesting part, that's probably not a great sign. Yeah. Uh, it shows that you're not really focusing on the good stuff or you're not or you're not getting the good stuff out there in a way that makes sense to people. You know, the other thing I thought that that part sort of illuminated was how strange the interviews with some of the other people are, like Ian Brown, in that they're so unlike normal talk. Yeah. And I I don't know if they're just so well-versed in talking to the media that they talk that way or whether they're like doing multiple takes so that they weren't umming and eyeing or something. But when they do have some more natural tape, like when they're talking to Jeff Platt, it's it 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 seems almost out of out of place because the way he's talking is normal. It's an interview, but you don't hear the interviewer and then the person who's responding is responding in this this doesn't really seem scripted, but not like really off the cuff either. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I actually think I know why that is. So when I first listened to this podcast, first episode, you know, I listened to a lot of like British mysteries. Yeah. And you said to me, Kevin, like, this is very different style of storytelling. First episode, I was like, oh, this is kind of like listening to an audiobook. Like, I kind of like yeah. this. I'm very That's... used to listening to a soothing yep. British man uh, walking me through a story. <laughs> like, I like that. He's Danish, by the way. Oh, he is? The narrator's Danish. He sounds like yeah. he has an English accent, but that I'm not surprised that yeah. he's Danish. But uh, I, I messed that up. I'm sorry. But I believe the reason that Jeff Platt's sounded, interview sounded more natural than the others was because there was music playing in the background in that restaurant. And they said, by the way, it was a really funny moment, the theme song to The Bodyguard, instead of saying, I will always love you. Which is like, <laughs> <laughs> but like you can't cut tape when there's a song behind somebody talking because then you hear the cuts so we actually heard the natural interview full sentences full phrases full complete thoughts because that music was playing in the background and they didn't have a choice other than to keep it more natural like the only way to really work around that as an editor is to duck the person down and then you say what they said and then duck them back up in a different part of the song but that is really tricky uh, narration cut, and I think that's why that's not as natural. Kevin, I was thinking about you in that scene. You know why? Because I five will always love buffet. you. Five pound buffet? No, oh. you would love a five pound buffet. Like if you, if, if there, were... wait, we're talking five British pounds. Oh, if there, if there were a lunch restaurant that was a pub, and you could get lunch for five pounds, and it was a buffet, would that not be where you would want to meet too? It's like six hundred pounds worth of cocaine. Six hundred pounds of cocaine. <laughs> Laura, what did you think? One of the interesting parts of the podcast, I thought, one of the more interesting parts uh, that was kind of buried in a lot of uninteresting stuff, was this search for Christy Smith, because that was the first murder that uh, Kelly talked about to the police. And they did do some data reporting where they com- like compared birth certificates with this incredibly common name, trying to find the match of the mom 
uh, to see if like they could find one person that was definitely a sibling to another person. What did you think of, of that investigation? Well, that was that was interesting because, you know, allegedly that's where his killing spree began as he's telling that detective when he decides it's time to just, you know, spill everything that he's been holding in about all these murders he says he's committed. So if you're trying to assess the credibility of Karen Kelly as this, you know, serial killer, that murder is where it all began. So I think that's the one that you you definitely do want to confirm and verify the information. And I'm still not totally clear what happened in the end. <laughs> I know I listened <laughs> Always to the a good last sign. two episodes <laughs> where we heard the finale of something with, like, I know we, we heard someone, maybe his sister or somebody that was married to somebody, his brother or something, but he died in a different year. So that sort of discredited that whole theory. I think that's what happened. Kevin? Um, <laughs> Laura, I listened to it with and what? read the print story and I still don't know what happened. You mean what happened with Christy, Christy Smith. Christy Smith. Was that what happened in the end that they found some like distant in the end, they relative? Found out that he, well, in the end, they found out that he died as an act as a, a work accident because he didn't actually he wasn't a commuter. He worked for the railroad and was doing work in a steam train. A loud steam train was coming through, and everybody backed off the track, and he ended up getting on a train and stepping in front of an electric train and was killed. And that made it interesting because why does Kieran Kelly claimed this as his first murder. Yeah. Because it seems less like, no, I was actually there and I did it, or I was driving the train or something like that. But either, you know, he ended up just grabbing every death that he could think of and starts piling it on, uh, or, you know, this drove him mad or whatever. It just, it's interesting because he points to this as his first murder he got away with. And said that's why he could do all the the rest of them. And Ian Brown thinks that there's significance to the Christy Smith murder, even though they can't find anything about it. To find out about it and find out that, like the true circumstances of it, just really makes this killer more intriguing. What if was he that is that a about? killer? Like I actually found myself well, wondering. Well, he like- is. He strangled a guy well, with his socks for snoring too loud. We know that he's ha- a fucking killer. We know that probably happened. But probably, yeah. Did that? They came in. He's got no socks on. Who else did it? Okay, he did that. But the rest of the serial killings, I found myself asking, like, is this BS? Like, did they have? I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's that's right. That's the interesting thing. But the 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 podcast assumes he did thirteen or fourteen or fifteen, and I don't know if we should even be assuming that. Well, I don't think it actually does. I think it sets that up. Yeah. You know, and so we're we're counting back. He's not a serial killer in the psychosexual serial killer sense. You mean like the mind hunter sense? Yeah, he. You know, he he's not like on the prowl. He just gets drunk and he's really mean and vengeful, and he kills people for no reason. For no reason, he doesn't even stick around to see if they're dead. I have a final question for you, Toby, because I think of the four of us, you appreciate the most. Stories about people on the margins and sort of the way that they are forgotten. And that I think the expression nobody zone is a really interesting and literary way to sort of describe that. Do you think, though, that this podcast did service to people in the nobody zone? Like, did we actually learn anything about what it means to be in, in the nobody zone? Or is that just a clever title that we heard referenced a couple of times? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think they hint at it a little bit, but... It seems like another opportunity to explore something interesting to do with this case. And, you know, you get these anecdotes, but I don't think you get much of a context for the life that he lived. There's a little bit where they're kind of tracing his history about when he comes over from Ireland with his buddy and these, what was the term they used? On the game, game, yes. Two women who are in the game. On the game. (laughs) If you read more British mysteries, you would know that expression, (laughs) Toby. (laughs) So I thought that was, I thought that was very brief, um, but but kind of interesting. (laughs) I thought that was very brief. (laughs) (laughs) I want to know more about this game. How do you play? Yeah, but just just this whole thing where they where they come over from Ireland and they don't have any like. They don't have any money or, or a plan, and they go to Liverpool. They're like, "Ho, ho, that's tough. We can't stay here." Then they go to Manchester, and you know the other couple's arguing all the time, and he's like, "I gotta get out of here." But just you know, sort of living these marginal lives and going from place to place, and you know, without seemingly like much of a plan, that seems like an interesting story. But 
it goes by in like three and a half minutes. Yeah. Then it's back to more confusing stuff. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know. Should they check out The Nobody Zone? It's a podcast originally promised to be six episodes, ends up being eight, maybe feels like 12. Should they check it out? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for The Nobody Zone? Thumbs down. Unless, of course, you really just need like some soothing background guy talking to like tune out the rest of the world that's going on because the narrator's voice is very soothing. That's the only thing that's redeeming about this entire podcast to me. It's too bad. I think it's a really interesting case. I think there's some good material. I just think that this could have been about half as long and benefited from some editing. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for the nobody zone? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a thumbs down. You know, I know that there were people who really liked it just from looking at social media and stuff. Um, it was hard enough to follow. And, you know, there wasn't a, a point at which I was sort of regretting the fact that I didn't understand, wasn't following it any better. Like, <laughs> I was actually perfectly fine with not really understanding what was going on, which is a bad sign. <laughs> Kevin Flynn, what about you? I'm a I'm a mild thumbs down. I mean, I think the Kelly case is definitely worth looking at. It's, you know, sort of a serial killer that nobody has heard about and why is that? And uh I think, you know, it's it's certainly worthy of a look. I don't know if it was put together very well. I know they spent five years investigating it, and I give them props for that. There are some things that they do very well as far as you know, some of the investigations into the peripheral figures here that sort of were lost to history. But, you know, in the end, if someone says, well, should I listen to this? I'd say, well, you probably could pass. Hmm. So that's why I'm a a marginal thumbs down. I'm a thumbs down. I really wanted to like this podcast because everyone in it seems great. I feel like I'd be friends with all of these reporters and producers. Like, I I really like the reporting is good. The reporting they've done is good. I have no idea. The guy who's builder all of a sudden just happened to know the serial killer. (laughs) I just, you know what? I have no idea why the reporter who did all this reporting wasn't the one reporting this podcast like it makes no sense to me it's very clearly his story that he's doing we're hearing tape that he gathered i have no idea why he's not at the center of this because it is really upsetting to me and i I, you know it's funny I, i say this a lot but like this is a great example of a story where your guide through it has no connection to it at all and is just telling you things that, that you then hear. It's like it's like that's that's that the wondery formula of like, I'm gonna tell you a story now and you'll hear some really perhaps compelling tape, but the person telling you the story it just doesn't connect to it in any way. And that, know, maybe it's because it's in five different languages, and maybe that's sort of like perhaps it had to be cookie cutter. I don't know. I don't know. That being said, the one the version we heard should have had the one in English. Yeah, the, <laughs> the reporter who speaks English, perhaps doing the story. It was just so boring. It really needed an editor. There were moments where I heard the same tape over and over again, the same narration written the same way over and over again. I had no idea what was going on. There were moments where I felt like maybe it was me. I'm like, am I just like really stupid today? And then I listened to it again the next day and I'm like, nope, it's not me. I still feel stupid today. So anyway, I really wanted to like this podcast. I really do love the European podcast. I love the change in storytelling sensibility that we hear when we hear podcasts from other places. This one, though, the Nobody Zone doesn't do it for me. So thumbs down. Kevin, you know what that sound is? Oh, that means it's business time. That music is about to play. How does that go? You're too late. It already happened. So, Kevin, what have we got going on in this business section on our Patreon that people should go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media to get right now? Well, uh, we are now offering something special. Patreon now lets us uh, offer annual memberships instead of month to month on Patreon. So if you do that now, you sign up for an annual membership. You will get 10% off, mm-hmm. plus you'll get a phone call from one of the four of us. Yes. We spent the last two weeks calling all the different people. It's like all you've been doing. It's all I've been doing. That sounds fun, Kevin. Yeah. We've been talking to great people and telling them about what's coming up on Patreon, including after the after show, which we're going to get back into uh, more discussions of murder on Middle Beach. Laura Bricker has part one of Laura her. Laura Bricker. You always pronounce her name wrong, Kevin. I just feel like I should. It's the business section. I'm comfortable correcting you. Resay that. Laura Bricker. Laura, Laura Bricker. Laura, Laura. Laura Bricker. Very good. Keep going. I'm going to like 
I'm going to, like, feed you to the tiger. <laughs> like Joe Exotic did with that Walmart meat? Yeah. Look, Lara's talking with uh, Carol Baskin uh, about a big cat mystery that she wants Lara's help with. And then uh, later this week, part two will be out. Wow. So we, like, broke that into two parts, huh? It's, it's our good, own, it's like, good, cereal. Yeah. Yes. But it's Lara mm-hmm. and Carol Baskin instead of Sarah Koenig and Adnan Syed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, Kevin, before we move on, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Yes, our Patreon patron saints are Jen Wallace and Alexandra Van Dyne. Bless you. Bless you. It's so nice that they support us on Patreon, isn't it? Yeah, they were both wonderful to speak with as well. I got to tell you, I have not been talking to the people I've called about Patreon. I've been talking to them about other stuff. What they're doing, how work's going, how their spouses are, what kind of pets they have. It's been super fun. Laura, have your calls been going pretty well? They have been, yeah. I talked to uh, Morgan out in Montana. Yeah, so it's been really great to talk to people, and it feels like you're talking to people who you've known for a long time because they've been listening to us, so it's kind of like talking to friends, that you, <laughs> people you already know. It's kind of interesting. Friends you didn't know you had because they know you really yeah. well. Toby, have you made any calls? Yeah, I made a couple calls. It was fun. Yeah, it is fun. It's sort of like a reverse pledge drive. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, you can support us on patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You can do it monthly if you want, but if you do it annually, right now, is it for a limited time or forever? We will call you. Right now it's forever, right? Right. <laughs> I don't know. My my phone bill's going up, so maybe we might have to say at some point we'll just call it off. That's right. All right. So head on over to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Join us, get all that extra content, and thanks so much for your support. And thus ends the business section. All right. Fade that music out, Kevin. Moving on. I, I was just wondering if I could get a scotch on the rocks. Yes, of course. You know, we have little buttons there that you can push, and then we'll just come bring you anything you want. Oh, you got buttons? Mm-hmm. Ah, yeah. You don't have to come chase us down. I knew that. Mm-hmm. Just wanted to... Uh... I'll stretch my legs. Cassie Bowden is accustomed to traveling the world, partying hard, and sleeping with whomever she wants. After a night on the town in Bangkok with sexy businessman Alex Sokolov, Cassie wakes up hungover in a blood-soaked bed with Alex's throat slashed and no memory of what happened. Are you talking about Amanda Knox? Yeah. Did she call the police? The uh, Italian police? Did they come? Do you, do you know the, what happened there? Mm, they arrested her. Cass, why are you asking me about Amanda Knox? Cassie tries to avoid scrutiny from the FBI while searching for Alex's murderer. She learns of his shady business dealings and dangerous associates, all while trying to piece together that night with the help of Alex, who talks to her through visions in her head. Why is our night together such a blur? Alcohol? Gotta remember something useful about Miranda so I can actually find her. Alex, she was with us that night. She's got to get me some answers before the FBI slaps me in handcuffs. HBO Max's limited comedy thriller series, The Flight Attendant, stars Kaylee Cuoco from The Big Bang Theory. Can this hot mess turns loose solve the case, elude the feds, take down a mysterious cabal, and get her life under control? We are going to be talking about plot points for The Flight Attendant, so to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. Kevin, I've got a question for you. Yes. Why has there never been a series about flight attendants before? It is an amazing opportunity for A, location porn, and B, learning what flight attendants actually do when they go into that little cabin. I think where NBC had something with a I never saw fake airline. But but is it not a good premise? Because we've all been on a plane, or most people have been on a plane. Many people have been on a plane, right. I should say. I should assume everyone has. But, but almost none of this takes place place on the plane but some of it does but like the the life of a flight attendant is so specific you mean on macguffin airlines (laughs) (laughs) what do you mean by that being a flight attendant is just the the starting point to get all this action going it puts her in an exotic location with a complete stranger uh where you know something bad happens and that's that's the kickoff point to this mystery Hmm. I think Toby thinks that this show is a little bit hackneyed and tired, judging by your notes. Toby, do you want to just have a go at telling me what you found flawed about the premise of the show? Get on the game. (laughs) Well, I just, you know, the whole I got so drunk last night and then I woke up and the person I was sleeping with is been stabbed to death and I didn't notice 
didn't see it and I don't remember anything that happened. Like I I feel like that's that's been done enough. Uh if you're gonna do it, you've gotta have some fresh angle on it, which they don't. Um second, there's nothing that drives me like I realize this is a pet peeve and some people may love things like this, but the whole the ghost of or whatever the fuck Alex comes back as and has a conversation with her at it's I just find it distractingly terrible. Um what? I I didn't know you could do that. Well, I'm dead. I'm not missing my legs. Okay, seriously, what is this? Am I going fucking insane? Where are we? And again, I think if you're going to do that, you have to do it in a way that's kind of clever or original or something, which this, again, it just doesn't do. And it actually starts with him talking where he's like all like his throat slit and he's all bloody. And then the next time he's a little less bloody. And then the whole rest of the time he's like completely fine. Hot guy. Yeah. Yeah. So it just wasn't very promising when that's like the setup. It's like, all right, like this is all stuff that's been done a lot before like, are you going to bring anything new to this? And like, if there was something, I completely missed it. And I, I, I know that you referred to it as like a comedy, whatever, thriller. thriller. Yes. Can you identify for me like three comic parts I to this? I actually didn't there, refer to it that Kevin did. He wrote that intro. <laughs> there was nothing There was nothing I found like, I, I realized it was trying to be kind of lighthearted, yep. I guess, but I didn't find anything that I thought was actually funny. I don't know. I, I I really hated this. <laughs> well, I'm going to okay. say, I, I'll, I'm going to just argue with you. I'm not going to argue with you, Toby. I'm just going to disagree with you. I actually liked the setup and I liked the ghost stuff at the beginning because the clever thing that I think is clever that they do that you don't usually have with that whole I'm talking to a dead person slash ghost thing Usually when that's done, it's like there's the fantasy person who knows things they shouldn't know, who's like guiding the character through what they should do. What I liked about the writing of that setup and that scenario, at least in the first two episodes, I liked it that Alex in her head didn't know anything that she didn't know. And I actually thought that that was really clever, how that was a device not used to send her on things that she should have not known about, but somehow this ghost in her head did, implying that she has some knowledge she shouldn't have or that there is something supernatural. I liked that it was stunted by what her experience of him was. Like, she remembers him as being this, like, wonderful guy because she had this wonderful night, even though she discovers all these weird things about him. And he's just like, yeah, I didn't know that about me either because he couldn't because he doesn't really live. He only lives in her head. And it may have been done before, but I thought some of the writing around that was clever. That is my only defense of that. And that I'm going to move on now. Lara, you are very frustrated by this show. I can only tell that because I'm looking at several bullet points here that have words like angry, annoying, (laughs) bad, uh, lost, but you thought it was promising when you first started watching it like I did, right? Yeah, I thought it was promising, even though I didn't understand what was going on. And I I was going to give it a chance because the book that this is based on is written by an author whose other books I really like. This is totally out of the realm of any of his other books that I've read. I mean, most of them are like set in Vermont or New England or something, and they usually have a good twist. But I was so frustrated with this show because I just felt like like the the whole like you're saying before like comedy thriller I'm like I don't think comedy thriller works here and and it and and I've seen like they're trying to make it light and she's just so scattered and so drunk all the time and I just was finding myself so annoyed and then you have just like so many random things happening I'm like like the her friend who now all of a sudden is an international mastermind stealing things from her husband's husband's computer and stuff. And I'm like, so I just found it frustrating and suspenseful in a way in terms of just like, oh, she's doing something else self-defeating or something else that just wasn't entertaining for me. It was just more annoying and I wanted to punch Cassie in the face. So that's how I felt about the show. <laughs> Kevin, what were your thoughts? Did you think the setup of the show was promising? Yeah, it did. Certainly the first couple of episodes I thought were, uh, you know, that it was it was really good. I mean, it's a breezy fantasy. It's a murder mystery. But, you know, it wasn't too heavy. 
you have a character that's kind of uh, out of control and you're like, oh, look at that, and kind of in a fun way. I, you know, I still do like it. I mean, you know, unlike everybody else here seems to think, you know, seems to hate it. So I think it, it's it's good. Uh, I know that the book is a lot darker. And I think, you know, the addition of Kaylee Cuoco, who's also a producer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's uh, the one who made the series happen. She's yeah. the one who made the series happen, cast her herself. If it were a different, if it were a more, um, an actress known more for her dramatic appeal as opposed to her comic appeal. Hmm. Uh, Kaylee is super likable, and so that's like how they have to make Cassie, right? Yeah, yeah. If it was somebody more dramatic, then you might have a more, you know, a more melodramatic telling of this story. It would be darker. But because it's her, and I think they want Cassie to be likable, they make her kind of a, a bit of a flitter gibbet. So I thought that, you know, it comes together well. You know, when they try to make it, about the seriousness of like her alcoholism, it gets real. And again, I don't feel like I'm wondering like, oh, I don't know if that is really the tone for the, what's supposed to be a breezy murder mystery kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, I don't know. I do feel like when I first started watching this, I really loved. I loved the first episode. I loved it. Mm-hmm. I really liked the second episode. I was thinking like this. Love the title be, sequence. It could be like a Killing Eve situation where it's like absurd but also fun. I still, like you, Kevin, find it watchable, even though I think it has gone off the rails a little bit. But there's one character I really love in this series, and that is Cassie's best friend, Annie, played by Zasha Mamet from, that you, if you've Girls. ever seen the show yeah. Girls, you know her. And she's also David Mamet's daughter, by the way, FYI, uh, who I think her character is just really, really fun. You went to his op, Cass. Oh, my God. Cassie, that looks so bad. Why the fuck would you go there? No, don't... Don't tell me. Don't tell me why you would go there. I can think of like 700 well-intentioned but unwise reasons why you would have done that. Toby, what do you think of this character, Annie? Cassie's best friend, super duper competent lawyer who apparently represents a bunch of shady people. Her boss is played by B.B. Newworth, who played Lilith on Cheers and Frasier. And there's just sort of like a weird, you know, we're lawyers. We do bad things. Shut up. We're not going to talk about it kind of vibe. I think her character is clever and well acted. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's the best part of the show, quite Mm. honestly. Like I haven't watched Girls, but I thought she was. She seems like a really good actor. Does a good job with the part in what seems to me to be trying circumstances with everything else that's going on around it. I thought Bebby Newworth was pretty funny to see. So that 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 whole bit to me was was somewhat redeeming, but probably the only thing that I thought was was pretty good. <laughs> well, we also have Lara Rosie Perez, uh, yeah. one of our favorite actresses from the 80s and 90s, playing her not best friend, but she thinks her she's her best friend, Megan, her fellow flight Foods attendant. Foods that begin with Q. Yes, foods that begin with the letter Q, Alex, uh, who is Do it. foods that begin with the letter Q, Quayhog. Quince. <laughs> she is, I mean, I really liked the sort of setup where they're co-workers and she's like, we're best friends, right? I mean, there's something like to me that's very endearing because who can't relate to thinking that one of your work friends is a better friend than they are. But then it kind of goes to this place immediately where we learn she has a secret. I'm sorry, this is so exciting. Corporate espionage. I know she's did you get the flash drives? I did indeed. All untraceable. Well, untraceable for Long Island, that is. What do you think of that storyline, Laura? It, it's kind of, it's hard to believe, I guess. I mean, it's interesting, and you wonder how it's going to tie in to Miranda and, you know, the other people that are doing bad things in the show, and if she's working for people connected to them. But it's like, you know, you see her getting, like, USB drives from, like, some teenage friend of one of her kids in a parking lot who's like, okay, Mrs. So-and-so, see you later. And you're like, really? (laughs) Yeah. You know, and then she's like, oh, getting her husband's computer under the auspices of like bidding on candles on eBay or something. So it's interesting to think about flight attendants kind of being like this ideal vehicle to be like a spy, a double agent or something like that because of the fact that they're traveling all the time and that they're traveling you know, for work and it's normal. And so they are in all these different places. But 
I don't know. And when her husband, like what a pushover he was when he comes out and finds her in the parking lot and he's like, oh, okay. See you later. I'm like, you mean discount Anthony Michael Hall, that guy? (laughs) That guy, yeah. I was like, what what was that? So she's like, oh no, I'm going to have a sexy party at this really shitty hotel. Okay, I'll see you later. (laughs) Now, Kevin, they are trying to get into this backstory, sort of digging into, I mean, let's be real. The show is trying to do a lot. (laughs) It's trying to do a lot. T.R. Knight plays uh, Cassie's brother. Of course, we know him as George from Grey's Anatomy. And here he is playing George again, basically, uh, you know, being judgy, mm-hmm. being kind of a little prig and not particularly supportive, but with hidden pain. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about the sort of attempt? I mean, one of the things that I will say I think is is interesting. I always think it's interesting when they portray alcoholism or substance abuse with highly functioning people it's much more interesting than seeing just people who can't get through the day we've seen that a million times the bottom line is most alcoholics are in some ways functional and make it through and can have you know great and rewarding lives and can have friendships and can have everything and they just have a troubling relationship with the substance and that's i think what they're trying to do here but it seems like they're trying to do an awful lot by bringing in this family story too yes so what do you think of that, how that's playing out with the back, you know, like I said, flashbacks? I, I, like I said earlier, I, I, I don't know if that really fits in, in, in the universe that they're trying to create. I think that it's an imperfect vehicle to deliver a message about the severity of, of substance abuse. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because it starts off, right, if this is going to be sort of a uh, flight of, of uh, fantasy with, you know, little consequences to create this very dark B plot about her substance abuse. And that's, you know, honestly, that's not to say that that isn't, you know, in real life isn't an important thing and that it shouldn't be handled, uh, you know, that it should just be brushed aside. Uh, but in this narrative world where, you know, she's talking to a guy with a slit throat and everything and she's, you know, running off to, uh, you know, on private jets to track down uh, weapons dealers or whatever. To sort of like have like this confrontation with your brother about your father's drinking in the way it just sort of and it's homophobia. Yeah, it just kind of like I'm like I don't know if that's there. If this were this was originally like I said a more dramatic book, and I believe that in the book she had a sister, not a brother. But to sort of keep that as the real deep, dark, dramatic conflict. This kind of seems just like maybe just a little too dark for something that they've cast and shot and scored in a way that's supposed to be much more breezy. Hmm. Well, I have honestly, you know, in this short period of time, basically covered all of the bases that you guys sent me notes about about this show. And and there's more that I can talk about about it, but maybe I'll do that with someone who likes it a little bit better than Toby and Laura. So let's do what we do. <laughs> let's let our listeners know, should they check out Flight Attendant on HBO Max? Brand new show, getting a lot of buzz for a myriad reasons, but maybe not on this podcast. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Flight Attendant? Well... You know, I think it's just a personal preference thing. I just really didn't like the show. And so, you know, I'm sure there's people that that would like it. And, you know, it's it's definitely different. It's unique. But for me, it just was a little too far fetched. And um, I just I really didn't care for it. So unfortunately, it's a thumbs down for me. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down or thumbs down for flight attendant? So, like, the closest thing I can think of to compare this to is, like, Scooby-Doo, maybe. Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> and that it's, like, there's this mystery, and what did, how, you know, how does she investigate it? It's, like, I'll pretend I'm somebody else and go to a, go to a uh, law firm, or I'll, I'll take a ride on that airplane that we don't know where it goes. And then, while nobody's looking, I'll peek inside this box and see what's in there. And it's, you know, it's like a cartoon. So um, I, I don't know. I, I, I just really didn't like it. So I'll give it a thumbs down. Kevin Flynn. I, I'm going to go thumbs up. I think uh, it's an interesting mystery. I thought that, uh, you know, Kelly Cuoco was uh, just very captivating. And, you know, the idea that she is trying to, you know, piece together this mystery while, you know, certainly being, you know, appearing to be the lead suspect. I know it's been done before, but I like how it's being done here. 
you know, let's see if it, it wraps up at the end. I feel like it's going to bring together all these different storylines, the one about the industrial espionage and Annie's law firm and, you know, uh, uh, Miranda, the assassin. I think it's all going to come together at the end, and hopefully there's a satisfying ending. Hmm. Well, I'm going to first tell you what I think about it, and then I'm going to give my review. I think the show is trying to do way too much, way too fast. We were introduced to way too many plot lines way too quickly. I would have stripped away a lot of the stuff or revealed it later and had it just kind of be about the central mystery for longer before I introduced the industrial espionage and before I introduced, you know, all the other sort of side plots that are going on, the alcoholism, the dad stuff. I would have maybe brought that in later. All I can think about is Killing Eve and the pacing of that because Killing Eve is also fantastical and in many ways very stupid if you were just to describe it to somebody yeah but they did a slow burn with all of their plotting that really worked because you had enough time to sort of invest in the characters and and want to spend time with them before you put them in situations that were insane and made no sense and by that time you were in there was a reason why they were there it felt good for you as a viewer this show is really missing the mark in that way with the pacing and with the way it was put together That being said, there's a lot to not like about it, but I'm enjoying it, I think, because of its absurd escapist nature. It's highly stylized. I find Kaylee Cuoco, who, by the way, I've like watched eight minutes of The Big Bang Theory, and I think it's like the least funny thing I've ever seen. I find her incredibly charming, and I think she's really good in this. She reminds me a lot of Christina Applegate. She has sort of that same sort of like experienced comedic actress vibe. Dead to me. Yeah, so when she's in a scene, like you can tell she knows what she's doing. She's good with her body. She's good with her face. Like she is great with delivery. She's like sort of seamless actress. Like there's a lot of, I think, actresses who've been in sitcoms for years and years and years who just develop kind of that naturalness and she has it like she really really has it so for that reason and because it's escapist and because it's stupid and because we're in the middle of a global pandemic and it's really fun to watch people fly the to suspense places is fucking killing me what are go, you i'm a thumbs up all right there we go <laughs> it's more suspense in that review than there was in the whole show as far thanks as toby concerned. it's true that's true <laughs> Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the week. The week. A Massachusetts man is suing the New Hampshire lottery, saying his losing scratch ticket is actually worth a bar of gold. Mm. Robert Martell got no matching numbers on his My Big Million scratcher. Even the bonus square was a loser. If a graphic of the dollar bill was there, he'd instantly win $200. Instead, it was a graphic of a gold bar. Not to be deterred, Martel says that that means he actually won a gold bar, something valued at around $750,000. So he's suing the lottery for breach of contract and will accept the cash if they don't have 25 pounds of bullion lying around, or so says his lawsuit. Incidentally, the odds of winning the grand prize on that particular scratch ticket are 1 in 486,420, which are still better than the odds of him winning this lawsuit. So, Panel Martel is clearly a loser, but you got to admire his gumption. What should the lottery give him as a consolation prize? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Um, I think he should get a Christmas pack of some more lottery tickets <laughs> with a different game. Toby Ball, what do you think? Oh, I was going to say a uh, gift certificate redeemable for another lottery card, but only at the New Hampshire State Liquor Store. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Flynn, what about you? What should Martell get as his consolation prize? Because you got to admire his gumption. Uh, let's see. He clearly lost. He thinks he won. He should get Georgia. <laughs> you know what I think he should get? What? An appearance on My Lottery Dream Home with David Bromstadt. <laughs> you know what he should get? Nothing. He fucking lost. <laughs> All right, we should probably Oh, this end one's it. got a reindeer on it. I want a reindeer. <laughs> Laura Bricker, before we finish up this week, do we have a cat of the week? We have a dog this week, Rebecca. Yeah, finally. My favorite animal. It's been a long time. Who is our dog? Tell me everything about him or her. 
Our dog comes to us from our good friend and listener, Angela Buster. Angela. Oh, Angela. Angela, so she has her regular dog and then she does like fostering. And so she's sending in her little guy, Amos. He's literally living his best life. About a year ago, we found an aggressive tumor and removed his spleen in emergency surgery. To all our shock, he has done really well. They had a tiny setback. He had a seizure, which was scary, but he's going back on strolls and sitting on work for Zoom calls. He loves listening to us, and he goes and sits on, on our Crowdcast sessions. Um, but where, how is he employed that he needs to be on Zoom calls? <laughs> well, I don't know, but there's a really cute picture of him sitting in this little like backpack, just like going out for a walk. Like, you mm. remember that ah. Did you, when you kids were little, you had the little backpack stroller, th- or, you know, that you would, if you yeah. went hiking. So the dog the is just, pack, yeah. yeah, he's just sitting there. He's like having a grand old time. So Amos, the dog is a lot better than the other Amos that I knew. I had a very naughty pony named Amos when I was little mm. that used to bite me and like threw me off and ran away with me when I was like four years old. So I'm glad that my, you know, feelings towards the name have turned around because of this dog. <laughs> I have a question, Lara. Yes. When a dog gets on Zoom, do they also forget to unmute themselves before they talk, just like my mom and all of my coworkers do? (laughs) I don't know. If I have a Zoom call with Amos, I'll let you know. Yeah. It's just going to be barking that you hear when he finally unmutes. All right. Lara Bricker, if people want to submit their dogs, and I suggest more dogs to be Cat of the Week, how can they find you online, on Twitter more specifically? at Laura Bricker. And by the way, you can also submit your cats or dogs or other animals of the week at our email address, crimewriterson at gmail.com, on our Facebook page, wherever you would like to submit them. Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you and tell you why you are right or wrong about the flight attendant. How can they find you on Twitter? Rights only at Toby Ball and Itch. <laughs> and Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you and see pictures of your lack of neck beard, how can they find you on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show at Crime Writers On, and I encourage you to join our amazing community and our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media and you will get the Crime Writers on After Show, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast featuring Carol Baskin. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the very handsome Olivia Burdett. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where we also solve mysteries with the help of the dead people who live in our heads. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. So I have a question, Laura. This is a real question. Yeah. Are you and Carol Baskin like friends now? Not really friends. No, she's, I think it's two cat people. That like to talk about cats, oh, that's, Rebecca. You mean your friends? <laughs> I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous. As I was listening to my little episode today, I was like, so all these other people like, did you ask this? Did you ask that? I'm like, no, I talked about cats. <laughs> I didn't ask her about her husband. Although there was one part where she said something like, I've never dug up a dead animal or dead anything before. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Partners in crime media. media.